I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like this to Um... <laughs> Chart music. Chart music. It's Thursday evening. It's 28 minutes to 8. It's the 26th of April 1984 and this episode of Top of the Pops is laden with the thick and choking musk of real dad's issues. Divorce pop, crumpety nostalgia, Pigeon Street reggae and wind cheaters. Hey up! You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the denouement of Chart Music 64. I'm Al Needham, and I'm standing firm with Simon Price and Neil Kulkarni, so come on, let's saddle up and ride this pony into the final furlong of this episode of Top of the Pops. Giddy up! could be at number one next week. You remember that Julio Iglesias guy? He's teamed up with another guy by the name of Willie Nelson. They've come up with this one, and it's called To All the Girls I've Loved Before. Who've travelled in and out my door I'm glad they came along Dedicate the song to all the girls I've loved before. We cut back to Janice, flanked by another woman in a hoopy vest dress, and some bloke who still feels it's acceptable to dress up like your man in tight fit in 1984. <laughs> With a smattering of actual real life kids at the back, one of whom is clearly arsing about and demanding our attention by jumping about and that. She asks us to recall the dark days of late 1981 and prepares us for To All the Girls I've Loved Before by Willie Nelson and Julio Iglesias. Born in Abbott, Texas in 1933, Willie Nelson began his musical career at the age of 13, playing guitar in bars and dance halls so he could avoid picking cotton on his school holidays. After joining the Air Force in 1950 and then being cashed out due to a bad back nine months later, he landed a job as a disc jockey with a view to financing his own recordings, but they were all rejected by local record labels. 
After a DJ stint at Washington State, a nightclub residency in Colorado, and another DJ gig in Waco, he moved to Houston and divided his time selling Bibles and encyclopedias by day and doing club gigs at night whilst working as a jobbing songwriter on the side. Convinced his future lay in the latter profession, he moved to Nashville in 1960. Once there, he started knocking about with the cast and crew of the Grand Ole Opera and was linked up with a touring band called the Cherokee Cowboys. And a year later, he'd written Ain't It Funny How Time Slips Away for Billy Walker and Crazy for Patsy Cline. After signing to RCA as a solo artist in 1964, he became a regular fixture in the Billboard country chart in the latter half of the decade, including getting to number 13 in March of 1968 with a cover of Bring Me Sunshine, the Morecambe and Wise theme. But it wouldn't be until 1982 that he made any kind of dent on the British chart when his cover of Elvis's Always On My Mind got to number 49 in July of that year. A year later, while Nelson was in London on tour, his third wife heard a singer on the radio she'd never heard of before and told him that it would be nice if he did a duet with him. That singer turned out to be Julio Iglesias, the son of a Franco-supporting gynaecologist and former Real Madrid B-team goaler, whose cover of Begin the Begin got to number one for a week in December of 1981. After getting his manager to get in touch with him, and still unaware that he was actually one of the biggest selling artists in the world at the time, they met up in Los Angeles and got on like a house on fire. Albert Hammond was roped in to produce and he suggested this song which was written by himself and Hal David with Frank Sinatra in mind which ended up on Hammond's 1975 LP 99 Miles from LA. Although it's Nelson who's done all the legwork, or his missus in any case, it turns out to be the lead-off single from Iglesias' new LP, 111 Bel Air Place, a concerted effort by CBS to put the Spanish lad over in America, as it also features collaborations with Diana Ross and the Beach Boys. And it goes without saying that it's been played to death in this country by Terry Wogan. It came out in mid-March and took five weeks to get into the top 40, and this week the needle has barely moved, as it's only gone up one place from number 36 to number 35. But the BBC are clearly obliged to do something for the oldens this week, (laughs) so here's a video of a concert performance. And chaps, the average age of the talent pool in this episode (laughs) has been jacked up considerably. (laughs) I'm really proud that it only got to number 17 here, you know, because it feels like a much bigger hit than it was. Because yeah, it was on the radio all the fucking time. Yes. It was when it was it was getting to that bit of the eighties where we were being forced to um, bow down to American stuff, yeah. whether mm. we liked it or not. Mm. And it's good that there was still a bit of rebellion in us that we wouldn't do that. But mm. yeah, um, to all the girls I've loved before who've travelled in and out my door. Um, does that make it the first Billboard Top 5 hit about pegging? I don't know. <laughs> um, so Willie Nelson, right, he's he's dressed like he's on American Pickers or something. Mm. He's got yeah. he's in fucking pigtails and a sort of headband. You and- won't believe what Beryl the Peril looks like today. <laughs> it's 
Uh, he's got he's got these brown trainers that look like those kind of unbranded ones you might get in a market. Yes, and he's got a T-shirt of his own name in the shape of Texas, yes. which is it's not cool. It's not cool no um, on the back um it says willie 83 um a lot of people think that's the year um, it's actually millimeters um, <laughs> but, but we see him side on um uh I, th- I think before he's joined by julio uh and uh because he's side on he looks two-dimensional he looks exactly like his king of the hill caricature yes. have you seen that the episode of king of the hill mm. have you seen that no hill? i don't think i have it's oh man i'm a huge king of the hill fan and it's this one where it, it begins with hank um dreaming about hanging out with Willie Nelson and <laughs> it's got um, Willie saying to Hank and, and it is Willie Nelson voicing it he's going you know Hank I always wanted to sell propane and propane accessories like you do but then this music thing came up and got in the way oh. then they play golf together and then Hank introduces his guitar Betsy to uh, Willie Nelson's guitar Trigger the, the, <laughs> the irony is that um, Willie Nelson would be more likely to befriend Dale Gribble, uh, yes. because of Willie Nelson's 9-11 truther tendencies. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he uh, expressed his doubts, didn't he, regarding yeah. the, the attacks. And he couldn't believe that buildings could just collapse due to the planes. Mm. Um, it, you know, he instead thought it was an implosion. He said this on the Larry King and later to Alex Jones. Uh. Bill O'Reilly on Fox um, called... Uh, Willie Nelson, the pinhead, because um, of that, uh, and and also a creep, not for that, but for glamorising drug use, because of course yeah. um, he probably did as much for the legalisation of marijuana as Bob Marley did. <laughs> you know, but let's remember that Bill O'Reilly's a cunt. Well, of course he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't be stressed enough. Oh look, Willie Nelson's basically a good yeah. guy when you add it all mm. up. On you know the sort of his positives and negatives. I think he's uh, in profit in. in oh, definitely, yeah. Guy, you know, he's a supporter of LGBT, you know, and stuff like mm. that. Uh, he 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 released that a track. Cowboys are frequently secretly fond of each other. Mm. For a country artist, that's something to value. Yeah, yeah. But there's, yeah, he he's alternative. There, that, that's another thing that happens in that King of the Hill episode. Actually, right, Bobby, the idiot child, goes, "I like Willie Nelson. He's got long hair. He's alternative." <laughs> and Hank goes, "Now you take that back." <laughs> he goes, "I followed that man from country and western to country to adult contemporary, and that's as far as I'm going." <laughs> I love that, and it's one of those weird uh, american tv performances mm. isn't it that it's um the the other one obviously around this time was kenny and yes. dolly uh where where it's it's filmed on american tv show and you've got that weird picture quality for for a start of of it being american tv is it grand Ole opry maybe that it's from mm, maybe i i I, I watched a full-length clip on YouTube, and it starts with an audience shot of uh, the women all look like Farrah Fawcett, right. and the men have all got cowboy hats. And yeah, it, it does look very opry. Mm. The strangest thing—I mean, it's strange enough already that you've got this guy Willie Nelson. You know the way he looks; it's, he's got he's got an odd look. But then Julio Iglesias, walks yes, on. and like to be fair, Iglesias is at least dressed up. You know, he yeah, was he's got his dinner jacket on, hasn't he? He was born in a dish, dinner jacket. He'll probably die in a dinner jacket. You know, mm. so so there's that that weirdness, uh, and that's exacerbated by these two worlds colliding. Yes, but it's also weird how they're singing it at each other, like yes. really tenderly and mm. dare I say it, sexily. He, he's singing in that usual lidded eye style, which makes it look like he's getting a nosh <laughs> while he's singing. He is, yeah, he's really smouldering at mm. Willie. Yes, um, there's a strange moment where uh, he leans forward and pats Willie on the stomach mm. and then a little bit later he slowly looks Willie up and down yeah. and his eyes end up on Nelson's crotch. Yeah. You're looking awful good in those jeans. Yeah, 
Forest of Fear. It's a strange combination, really, this, Very. this stoner renegade with this international sex symbol. Mm. Um, but they're both of a sort of similar age, in a sense. So you can almost imagine them dressed as soldiers in World War II singing this song. Mm. What are we watching here? We're we watching a pop song we de- that deserves to be on top of the pops. Clearly not. No. We're watching a business decision. Yes. I mean, you know, that seems to be what's mm. coming across. Iglesias is practically unknown in the states mm. he's played some gigs in la mainly playing to the hispanic community obviously yeah. he, he's selling out they've gone down well in 83 um we, we've had by now of course islands in the stream and and we got tonight and things like that um by now mm. nashville is becoming this place that isn't just the kind of music town it's it's a tourist destination you know it's mm. the center of a of a global fandom for this stuff that records like to all the girls further mopped up but to be honest with you as you know usual thing as soon as i saw this i was like um i want to leave my notes completely blank because if i was being honest i'll be out a fucking room yes. this is mumbai this <laughs> yeah. is not for me you know this is not a song that should be sung as a duet really because you know it just comes off as two old bastards bragging on about all the times they got their end away <laughs> and you know by the end of it you expect to see them humping away like the fat blokes on french and saunders aren't you <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've had some fun here, me. It, it is really reflective of what's happening yeah. to country music at this time. If the 70s was a time when country sought crossover with rock, then 80s is mm. where it seeks crossover with the pop. So it makes yeah. sense in all kinds of business ways. But mm. yeah, it drives me from the room. Yeah. Do you know that as well as targeting the Spanish or Hispanic market, Iglesias also tried to sort of um, paint himself as having Jewish identity. He's, he said that he's right. Jewish from the waist up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is, a, uh, I mean, in, in order to establish the veracity of, of that, I suppose we'd have to ask yes. some of the girls he's yeah, loved before. Yeah. Um, the things, yeah, the, the, the lyrics, the lyrics, of this song, this this whole business of addressing your exes. For a start, it's something that your current missus is never going to know. So it's weird. It's weird that it has this status as a kind of romantic ballad. Mm. And you know, personally, I think these things are best left unsaid but if I was going to talk to all my exes probably it would just be one word sorry yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. for all sorts of reasons you know but I would imagine in, certainly I don't know about Willie Nelson but certainly in the case of Julio Iglesias all the girls he's loved before I mean that's that's a lot of letter writing that's a lot of doors he's got to knock on you know if he's doing the 12 step it's, a, it's, a, it's 12 step isn't it he's making amends that's a record that's going to be mm. too big for anyone's turntable exactly that is never mind the Bob Marley box set you're going to have to play it on a fucking merry-go-round yeah i mean it's basically it'll be a whatsapp group now a really big whatsapp group because basically Mm. iglesias has seen a lot of fanny right more even (laughs) his dad and that's saying something because julio senior was a gynecologist (laughs) yes there's one fact everyone knows about julio iglesias which is that he was a goalkeeper um there's basically Mm. him pope john paul ii and albert camus are the three famous former goalkeepers I don't know what to do with that, except we just have to... I know you've acknowledged it already, but I just have to, have to get it in there. The thing is, um, you think he'd be quite well-travelled, uh, certainly with um, living in, in, in the States and, and his football activities and, and all of that, just sort of touring mm. everywhere. He doesn't sing mm. English mm. very well, does he? Um, he no. apparently went to one of those shonky English language schools in Cambridge for three months. You know, those ones, right. those ones, it's basically Fucking a house, hell. but it says like the Cambridge School of English or something like that on, on the, on the door. Yeah. And Brighton's full of those, by the way. Um, so, but <laughs> yeah, and I, I want, surely you can pronounce English lyrics 
better than you are doing. And then I thought, well, maybe that's a commercial decision itself. Maybe he's just keeping mm. his really strong uh, Madrid, his Castilian accent to, yeah. uh, um, to, to make it exotic and sexy. I don't know. You know. I don't mm. get the lyrics to this song at all. But, I mean, and, and, I, and I, like Simon, I question why it was written. Because if you're writing a song to all your exes, you're letting them win the breakup. Yes. You, you know what I mean? Mm. You cannot let that happen. No. I, I don't get that at all. You're letting them win. Yeah. Um, you know, I know there are no winners in breakups. but I mean, if the song was called To All The Girls I've Loved Before, Fuck Off, <laughs> then you could understand it a bit more. <laughs> Exactly. Maybe it should have been Julio Iglesias and Eight Ace. Yeah, you know, to, to all the girls I've loved before, I faked every orgasm. I don't know something. I don't know. Yeah. It's a bit like, do you know that bit in I'm Alan Partridge where he's been having it off with his secretary, mm. but then he dumps her, and he actually um, basically addresses her on the radio yeah, yeah. show that night, <laughs> yeah. and you see her in the back of a taxi, and he goes, "I thank her for that stolen afternoon," <laughs> yeah. but it had to end. Kind of and it's, it's basically like that. So you know, obviously we've established that Willie Nelson's on the side of the angels and all that. And there's yes. lots of evidence for that. Mm. But I'm not so sure about Iglesias, right? Um, because, right, for a start, he's a supporter of PP, which in Spain is the neo-Francoist Partido Popular, yeah. um, which, you know, you've got to have um, concerns about that. But there's this weird um, uh, incident where he tried to do a Johnny Cash. Do you know about this? He sang in a prison in Chile. Oh, really? Yeah, this is... 1975, so we're talking about high Pinochet time. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, he sang in Valparaiso um, prison in Chile. It's a really strange decision, but it went really badly wrong. Because you know when Johnny Cash played, you know, San Quentin or whatever, Mm. and the prisoners welcomed him as one of their own. Yeah. You know, uh, and he did have some kind of prison heritage himself, even though it's been talked up a bit. Mm. He didn't really spend that long inside. But anyway, you know, Johnny Cash. Sort of was convincingly a man of the people and, you know, on the side of the prisoners. Mm. Iglesias um, didn't really manage to convince the audience, shall we say, and he blew it before mm-hmm. he even started singing. He gets up on this little stage, which is basically more than a couple of wooden pallets right. in, in a corridor, and uh, before he's even sung anything, he says, apparently I'm a free man, but actually I'm a prisoner of my commitments of singing here and there, of hotels and planes. My fans do not leave me in peace. I understand you very well. I bring you a fraternal hug and hope you recover your freedom as soon as possible. Oh, mate. Yes. Hmm. I've got this and I've I've got to credit it. Hang on, this is a men's prison he's singing at. Yes, it is. Oh, no, it's It's not Chilean Wentworth. (laughs) (laughs) That would have gone down a lot better. Yeah, maybe if it's Holloway. Yeah, exactly. But credit where it's due, I'm, I'm quoting this next chunk from uh, Dr. Katya Chornik from The Guardian in 2014. Mm. But here's a a report of what happened. The singer's words did not go down well. Mm. The political prisoners, because obviously there are lots of political prisoners, were offended. He was laughing at us, Vidal claims, whoever Vidal was, I can't remember, one of the political prisoners. We began yelling in unison, you son of a bitch! And we (laughs) called him worse things than that. There was a surprised expression on Iglesias' face. He looked this way and that, clearly disconcerted. Rezales, another prisoner, adds, Iglesias asked, You up there, why are you so angry? Jesus. <laughs> so, someone explained to him that his rowdy detractors were political prisoners. Uh. Then the manager announced that Iglesias was leaving and he left without singing a single song. 
Two oh, years after. This, uh, didn't even begin the begin. didn't begin the begin, no. Uh, right, and here's a coda to this, right. Two years after the Valparaiso uh, episode, Iglesias released an album containing the song Soy un Trujan, Soy un Señor, I am a knave, I am a sir. The Pinochet regime kept a secret detention and torture centre at 3037 Iran Street in Santiago. One of its nicknames was the Discotheque because detainees have testified to hearing this Iglesias track and other select songs at the centre. Torturers would play them non-stop at ear-splitting volume to drown out the sound of their victims' screams. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, a, mm. a strange history uh, that Iglesias has in uh, political terms, to say the least. To say the least. I mean, it, uh, it's no mitigation, but I do recall in 2015, he uh, did an interview with a Barcelona newspaper where he said he would never, ever play a Donald Trump casino ever again. Fair play. <laughs> All right. And I've got the quote. It, it, it was after Donald Trump came out with a load of anti-immigrant comments, as usual, and when he was a presidential hopeful. And the Iglesias quote is, uh, I've sung many times in his casinos, but I won't do it again. He seems to be an asshole mm. um, he thinks he can fix the world forgetting what immigrants have done for his country he is a clown and my apologies to clowns so maybe he's softened a little bit but that still doesn't make him not right wing do you know what I mean mm. he's kind of sticking up for sticking up for Hispanic population but uh, yeah that's disturbing no. it, it is kind of strange that Iglesias has hooked up with Albert Hammond who's vaguely a kind of hippie-ish counterculture mm. figure I guess you mm-hmm. know um, because yeah as you mentioned um, the, the album was you know Hammond was involved in that the previous single was a cover of The Air That I Breathe um, with yes. the Beach Boys, which was also written by Hammond. Um, there, were, there were five Albert Hammond songs in total on um, 1100 Bel Air Place, uh, which was his actual address, by the way. It's a bit weird giving yes. out your home address as an album title. Yeah. So basically, the success of this song and of the album was paying, a couple of years later, for the expensive Swiss education of the guitarist from The Strokes. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, to all the girls I've loved before, jumped 11 places to number 24, and a week later it got to number 17, its highest position. In America, it went all the way to number five and sparked a colonial variant of Julio Mania, with five of his LPs being in the Billboard LP chart at the same time. Nelson never bothered the UK chart again, but Iglesias would have one more top 40 hit in 1988 when he teamed up with Stevie Wonder and took My Love to number five in June of that year. And Nelson and Iglesias would reunite this year to do a cover of Al Martino's Spanish Eyes, but it failed to chart. Good. <laughs> we dedicate this song to all the girls we love. Julio Iglesias and Willie Nelson together. The story behind that song is that Willie Nelson's wife actually heard Julio Iglesias on the radio and thought, he's the man to do a duet with my husband. Here's the charts, all right? Number 40, the send-up single by Weird Al Yankovic, Eat It. At 39, a chart entry, Love Games by Bell and the Devotions. 38, Pearly Dewdrops Drops by the Cocteau Twins. 37, What Do I Do, Bill Fearon and Galaxy. At 36, a chart entry for Sandy Shaw, Hand in Glove. 35, To All the Girls I've Loved Before, Julio Iglesias and Willie Nelson. 34, Is Lucky Star by Madonna. This week's 33, Dr. Mabuse and Propaganda. 32, PYT from Michael Jackson. 
Jocelyn Brown's at 31 with somebody else's guy. At 30, Silver, Echo and the Bunnymen. Relax at 29 for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. At 28, It's a Miracle by Culture Club. This week's 27, Raining Men by the Weather Girls. And Shannon at 26 with Give Me Tonight. Right, it's 22 minutes to it on top of the pops. Let's go back to number 30 and over there to Echo and the Bunnymen and Silver. With a black member of City Farm in a Marge Simpson-style necklace absolutely draped around his neck, while a lad in a white top with complicated fastenings pretends not to notice, says, now that's what I call slushy, and leads us into the first third of the top 40. And, chaps, as is the style in 1984, chop pictures, they're, you know, they're, they're competent. I don't know, I think uh, I was quite excited by some of them, just because they represent my cultural values. So, for example, at number 38, mm. there's a shadowy picture of the Cocteau Twins mm-hmm. uh, with pearly dewdrops yes. drops. And I would have been really glad that yeah. that record was in there. And just seeing that kind of music press photography in there, I guess, at 4 AD. Oh, if only Zoo would dance to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with balloons. And then you got um, Sandy Shaw with the Smiths. And I, I really like that photo because she's kind of... The photo makes them look like Serverland flaked by Avon, Vila and Blake from Blake 7. Um, <laughs> yeah. yes. you got um, Madonna with two people who are not Madonna which I think is interesting. Mm. They're presenting her in the early days as sort of part of some kind of little group or collective. There's another woman there as well, isn't there? Another woman, yeah. Good to see Jocelyn Brown in there. In your face, Gavin Martin. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And propaganda. Propaganda, yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. Propaganda, yeah. They've had to make do with using a record cover for Shannon and the Cocteau Twins. But, you know. That Shannon track, Give Me Tonight, fucking brilliant. Yeah. And, yeah, Jocelyn Brown as well. Even Madonna, Lucky Star. There was some great kind of dance pop coming out of America at that time and making yes. it into the UK charts. really was. Dancy Reagan, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, liked, <laughs> I liked the bit when he looks at his watch. Uh, Bates. Yes. And he goes back to 30 because yes. he checks his big chunky watch and you can yeah, bet goes, that. Yeah, wa- it's 22 minutes to 8. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You yes. can, I reckon that watch is a Seiko. Yeah. <laughs> mm. With calculator facility. <laughs> Maybe so. Is Seiko the kind of mm. Ford Mondeo of watches or something? Is, <laughs> yeah. that, is that it? Right. He then points firmly at the stage and introduces Silver by Echo and the Bunny Men. Formed in Liverpool in 1978 by Ian McCulloch, who'd just been sacked from a shallow madness by lead singer Julian Cope before they mutated into the teardrop explodes, Echo and the Bunnymen consisted of McCulloch, Will Sargent, Les Pattinson and a drum machine. They played their first gig in Eric's in November of that year in support to Teardrop Explodes, playing just one song, but for 20 minutes. In 1979, they signed to Zoo Records and put out the single The Pictures on My Wall, which got to number 24 on the independent singles chart. Naturally, appeal session was inevitable, and after they took on Pete DeFratis as a real-life human drummer, they signed a deal with Corova Records, an offshoot of WEA. They also played their first ever gig in London in support to Madness and Bad Manners at the Electric Ballroom. They lasted two songs. 
I'm surprised it went that long, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The nutty, crazed youngsters wouldn't have appreciated this, I feel. <laughs> a year later, they made their first dent on the singles chart when Rescue got to number 62 in May of 1980, and they became a regular-ish fixture on the charts and even scored two top ten hits. This is the follow-up to The Killing Moon, which got to number nine in February of this year. It's the second cut from their fourth LP, Ocean Rain, which comes out next week and already has a promotional campaign on the go where McCulloch claims it's the greatest album ever made. It entered the chart last week at number 32 and this week it's nudged up two places to number 30 and here they are in the studio. Surprisingly, chaps, and, and probably deliberately, they've not given this to Janice yeah. to introduce. Mm, yeah, but, yeah. but then again, she's probably just charged off and piled down the front. She liked her echo and the bunny men she did. Yeah, she loved them. A lot of people I love loved them. Yeah. And I still don't get it. I mean, mm. who knows why a, a band from a large uh, northwestern city who trade in gobby arrogance and play music massively in hot <laughs> to the 60s might rub me up the wrong way but I, I, i'll mm. give it a go for me the big bands i was meant to like in this period bernie men new order you two mm. they had this thing of being yeah proper and big and i mean a couple of songs i liked maybe but crucially visually they didn't grab me at all mm. and, and oddly enough pop got me sonically but for rock to work with me in a way, these big proper bands, they had to grab me visually. I never really fancied Mac, and I was I was intrigued by, say, the look of Frankie, the look of The Cure. So I mm. went, went kind of that way. These bands seemed drab to me at the yeah. time, but I'm willing to accept that, you know, that shallow teenager that I was has maybe grown up a bit. So I came to this performance uh, for chart music thinking, hmm, maybe this is the one that will convince me and win me round but mm. but midway through a guitar solo that was so fucking listen to the flower people i was part expecting the <laughs> bass player to mouth we love you you know yes <laughs> yes i just yes. thought you know what i, I got those vibes as yeah well. i just thought you know what fuck this i don't get the adulation because <laughs> it hurt which hurts me because people i love like my wife loved the bunny man chris roberts one of my favorite writers loves the bunny man you know mm. even the cameramen here clearly love the bunny man the, the yes. main one seems to be attempting some sort of up skirt manoeuvres on that throughout this clip but no it leaves me cold and by the time he's what what's he singing at the end um la 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 chuck us in the chips or whatever no sorry it's just, it's not i'm waiting to be convinced by the bunny man with their big big sound and their their 60s retrograde pop but no it's it leaves me cold i'm sorry because this is the first time Echo and the Bunnymen have actually appeared on the top of the pops that we've covered, but they've already been given moderately minuscule shrift on chart music. Mm. So, you know, it was about time we covered them. Simon, come on. Yeah, you're probably expecting me to come back and trash everything that Neil said, but I'm in agreement mm. with quite a lot of it. No. Um, despite being, you know, um, <laughs> somebody who makes part of my living from running an alternative 80s club night, um, Spellbound, tickets still available. Um <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm I'm more of a bunny men skeptic than you might think, um, for a lot of the same reasons and a few more. One thing I do disagree with Neil about is Mac visually. I think he is beautiful. Mm. Oh, he's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, but not interesting to me. He's very pretty. There's no difference. Yeah, and he's no. he's got great hair a hairdo that was emulated with varying degrees of success by everyone from me to richie edwards up in the valleys to loads of yeah. kids all that, around that the UK. Yeah, yeah yeah i think you have to be 
lucky enough to be born with very straight hair to carry it off because you've got mm. naturally wavy hair you're fucked you just look right. like a farmer if you get it wrong <laughs> <laughs> and his lips of course he's got lips like Salvador Dali's sofa mm. and yeah just a very pretty yes. face uh, the face that launched a thousand grey raincoats you know I've probably bought a raincoat mm. off the back of that yeah but that's one of the problems with the bunny men to begin with is everything is too styled uh, if you look at them on this top of the pop stage they all look too perfect you've got um that mm. teardrop shaped 12 string guitar that will Sargent has yeah. got you've got that gretsch yeah. looking bass that les pattinson plays yeah. they've all including peter freitas on the drums got perfect hair whether it's a bird's bowl cut or a sort of 50s quiff they just look immaculate mm. and very tasteful and even though i i realized earlier on in this episode i praised the smiths for how cool they look in so many ways um everything the smiths are is everything the bunny men are not and i i can't mm. not juxtapose those two bands and find the bunny men wanting so for a start their lyrics were always shit right they were always embarrassing. <laughs> Neil's mate, Bibakov, uh, wrote of them in The Enemy um, that their lyrics were tired juxtapositions of mysterious buzzwords, nonsense and banality. And I would 100% agree with that. I mean, this song, for example, half, and I know we're coming off the back of not long ago, The Reflex, but even so, um, no. <laughs> half the lyrics of Silver are tips and la 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 la. Yes. Right? And which did sound the, like tits to tits, a 16-year-old yeah, right. boy, which would have, you know, that would have killed some time in the playground. <laughs> but this is exactly the thing. The sort of people, the sort of studenty types, the sort of, um, as me and my mate Andrew, who was the other member of the Mary Brannell Boys murder, would have mm. called them long-coated trendies, right, mm. who followed the bunny men, right? They would have thought that the bunny men's lyrics were really deep and meaningful and profound, whereas yeah. what Duran wrote was superficial froth i don't think there's any difference between them mm. to be honest mm. i think it's exactly the same thing um in fact maybe a, possibly a little bit more thought went into duran's lyrics i don't know to me the bunny men's lyrics always smacked of written on a kind of cocaine or speed come down in the studio when you've only got half an hour left before uh, you've, you've got to pay another grand to hire the room written on the back mm. of an envelope written on the back of an envelope will this do and this was basically confirmed by an interview i read the other day from this period bunny men interviewed by max bell in the face where he notes that Mac scribbles out lyrics on old envelopes, literally writes right. lyrics on the back of an envelope. Mm. And you look at this song, Swung from a chandelier, my planet sweet on a silver salver, bailed out my worst fears, because man has to be his own saviour. What the fuck? That's no. just, that's meaningless bollocks. Do you, know, do you know what though, Pricey, sorry to inter inter interrupt, but what it reminds me of is that Noel Gallagher game <laughs> of half-smart lyrics that an idiot would think are smart. Yeah. That are just fucking lazy and hacked together phrases. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Well, that's that's something that the Bunny Men have in common with Oasis, and it's no coincidence that once Oasis were the biggest band in Britain, they gave the Bunny Men a bit of a leg up for their, right. their sort of comeback in the 90s. Because um, they are both the sort of bands who would say, oh, we prefer people to come up with their own meanings to the lyrics you know yeah. when challenged on what what these songs mean they just oh no we don't like to talk about that just you know um, everybody's got their own meaning and they're all equally valid man mm. and i would think fuck off no you wrote this it means something what does it mean tell us what it means yeah fucking tell us right um and that's why they were to me everything that the smiths weren't and they were nothing that the smiths were so there was actually um around this time in fact very close to this time april 1984 
there was a front cover of Number One magazine, right? Where um, they brought McCulloch and Morrissey together. Yes, they did. Right. Yes, and I was really offended that that even existed. Mm. I was fucking just because of everything I've just said. The way they build it was Ian McCulloch of Echo and the Bunny Men and Morrissey of the Smiths are the enigmas of rock as frontmen, spokesmen, and lyricists of the most popular cult bands in britain the pair must have more than their vertical hair in common and then it goes on to try and find common ground but as a reader uh, and a fan of the smiths i'm thinking no no you have no fucking right to be there Mm. one thing that comes across in that um number one magazine piece is mcculloch's attitude to his own lyrics because he describes his lyrics as phrases in common use put together in an evocative way i like cliches and bits of conversation Mm. so that's it he's just chucking stuff together just cliches together yeah. you know all that stuff i hate all that stuff on you know about sellotape and knives and cutting the mustard and all that kind of <laughs> bollocks on their on their other songs the bunny men to me were exactly the slags i was talking about when i played <laughs> the they really were right they were just fucking charlatans they were frauds to me they really were mm. and in the rest of the interview they do find common ground they go on to slag off disco and to slag off synthesizers and stuff like right, that right um and then in never the arrogance comes to the fore and you know yeah he then mac this is starts to try and uh, make excuses for this stuff you know he says he says when i say i'm a genius or i'm the son of god <laughs> it was only supposed to yeah. be funny i said those things as a way of taking control of boring interviews but this is something that um people always praised mcculloch for they praised him for being gobby mm. and mouthy and lippy oh yeah he was he was mac the mouth wasn't he around about mm. this time Mm. Yeah, but but beyond having a notable mouth, literally, I don't really get it. He never said anything of any worth. You mentioned this thing of the greatest album ever made. Mm. Yeah, supposedly he said that as a joke to Rob Dickens at Warner, but Dickens went with it. Mm. But that does pretty much sum up the Bunny Men. They were, in so many ways, all mouth and no trousers, Mm. you know. They just didn't have anything to back it up. What they did have to back it up is a magnificent sound. The sound, I thought, was wonderful yeah. of their records. It's it's huge. It's got this, this sweeping grandeur to it. And a lot of the credit for that, of course, has to go on this record, on, on the Ocean Rain album, to Gil Norton, who um, later worked wonders with Pixies, mm. of course. Um, and also to the perhaps less celebrated Henri Lousteau, who was a French producer, also a violinist, so he knew his way around a string section. Mm. Yeah. He'd been around since the 60s, uh, in France, because they recorded this in Studio des Dames in mm. Paris, which was um, the previous year. It's where The Cure had recorded The Love Cats. Right. And Lousteau had worked on records by Nana Muscuri and Johnny Alliday and Fuck. people like that. And, uh, you know, he, he would have been involved uh, in these sessions uh, in sort of manhandling and coordinating the 35-piece orchestra, which is why Ocean Rain does sound so mm. huge. But in terms of Bunny Men singles i mean as the title suggests silver it's very much second place on the podium mm. it's, its appearance on top of the pops i think is is a two-minute imposition of a set of cultural mm. values mm. it's a two-minute window of oh we're all into this indie stuff aren't we if you're into indie here's yeah. your thing this is your two minutes of indie have two minutes yeah, of indie is <laughs> our band yeah yeah exactly but the song i mean don't get me wrong um there's some buddy men stuff i love you mentioned mm. the killing moon came before that what an incredible yes. record that is, The Killing Moon. Um, I, I'd also um, heap the same amount of praise on The Cutter. Mm. And I've got a lot of time for some of those other sort of imperial phase singles like The Back of Love and 
Never Stop, particularly the um, discotheque non-stop version, where it's called the um, the 12-inch version mm. of that. It's interesting that they, they put um, a picture of the Royal Albert Hall on a record sleeve, and also they played a gig at the Royal mm. Albert Hall, because that in itself was a statement of intent. And the symbolism of that, of course, is grandeur. Yeah. It wasn't normal at that point for little Scouse indie bands mm. to play the Royal Albert Hall. They wanted everyone to know how yeah. big they were, and I get that. I mean, we've, we've talked before about the Jesus and Mary chain being the first indie band to talk themselves up huge, which the Stone Roses would go on to do and then Oasis. But this is where it begins, isn't it, with Echo and the Bunnymen? Or with Ian McCulloch in any case? I guess it probably does. I mean, Morrissey certainly talked himself mm, up, yeah. but I think, you know... He, he did have the chops and the Smiths had the chops to back mm. it up, really. I, re- I really believe that. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't sit at home and play the Bunny Men. Of course I did. I was shifting into that kind yes. of music. Yeah. Yeah. I was shifting into indie music. And if you were into that kind of stuff at that time, apart from listening to the Janice Long show on the radio or Annie Nightingale on a Sunday, if you wanted a fix of that stuff, there weren't many LPs you could stick on. Yeah. And their greatest hits album, Songs to Learn and Sing, which I think came out in 86, mm-hmm. was one of a handful of compilations by bands of that type, along with Once Upon a Time by Susie and the Banshees and Standing on a Beach by The Cure. Mm. Um, and I guess you had um, uh, things like Hatful of Hollow by The Smiths. So yeah, sometimes if I wanted a break from listening to bands who I actually loved... I'd stick on the bunny man because you know it's it sounds good yeah. and it's it's that kind of mm. thing. And yeah, like Neil, I know loads of people who I love and respect mm. who love and respect the Bunny Men. I'm even good mates with Dave Balfe from the Teardrop Explodes, who was their yeah. manager and all that kind of stuff and, and was in, involved in them in, in a big mm. way. So um, I'm never going to completely cut them off. But I do think that the Bunny Men are not gods to follow they are false prophets i did not worship them i mean at my school very minuscule amount of people were into echo and the bunny man and they were always from the nice estate who were going on to do their a levels it was made pretty clear early on that this was not for me but yeah killing moons a, f- a fucking tune it is but i could only ever i mean i mentioned the cocteau twins in the yeah. chart rundown i could only ever love them as sound mm. Mm. Because the Cocteau Twins, at least the Cocteau Twins lyrics, didn't purport to be anything other than yeah. babble, yeah. gibberish. Yeah. But Bunny Men try to have it both ways. They wrote their lyrics in the back of an envelope and they try to, with that kind of Scott Walker croon that he, he would put on, mm. they try to imbue those bad lyrics with some kind of import that they just could not carry, I think. The thing that does my head in is that they were a big enough band in the 80s. And it confuses me that Ian McCulloch isn't treated with the same love and respect nowadays as as people like Nick Cave, who who got nowhere near to the chart success that Echo and the Bunnymen had. Mm. Well, when whenever the Bunnymen come back and play live, those gigs are massive sellouts. And they played a Godiva Festival in Coventry a couple of years ago, which my wife dragged me to. Um, and they went down a storm. And I have to say that they can still do it without a doubt, yeah. without a doubt. But for me, they are they are kind of always, they're the tape that gets put on in the fifth form centre a few years down the line, mm. uh, whilst my tape <laughs> is torn out because it ain't proper music. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to play the cult electric, but they wanted the bunny man. Fuck them. <laughs> so the following week, Silver stayed at number 30 and slid down the charts while Ocean Rain entered the LP charts at number four, its highest position. 
They righted the ship with their follow-up, Seven Seas, which got to number 16 in July and remained an intermittent chart presence until 1988 when McCulloch left the band. A year later, sadly, DeFratis was killed in a motorbike accident and the remainder of the band struggled on until they split up in 1993. Echo and the Bunnymen without Ian McCulloch. That ain't right. There's a lot of that in the late 80s, early 90s, like bands like mm. The Stranglers and The mm. Undertones. Of course, yeah. Struggling on with the wrong lead. Even Iron Maiden struggling <laughs> on with the wrong lead singer. Yeah, and one thing you have to say for Ian McCulloch, maybe the reason he was such a big gob and, and putting himself about in the music press was an attempt to not be known as Echo. <laughs> like Mick Hucknall was known as Simpler. To, to certain yeah. thick people. So, you know, hats off to him for that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mac from the Bunny Man has just told me to tell you that he is the greatest thing that ever lived. So I won't. We shall go back to the charts. Number 25. At 25, the Gap Band with Someday. That's the way I like it. Dead or Alive at 24. The Armour Armour, Robert De Niro's Waiting at 23. One Love, People Get Ready, Bob Marley and the Wailers this week at 22. And Thieves Like Us, New Order, a chart entry at 21. Automatic, The Pointer Sisters at 20. The Caterpillar, The Cure at 19. Nick Kershaw, Dancing Girls, up to 18. SOS Band, Just Be Good To Me at 17. At 16, Nelson Mandela, the special AKA band. And the Bluebells, I'm Falling, up to 15. At 14, Woodbees, Pray Like Aretha Franklin, Scritty Politti. The Flying Pickets, When You're Young, at 13. Ain't Nobody, Rufus and Chaka Khan, at 12. And at number 11, it's Blamange and Don't Tell Me. And let's go back to number 13, to the lads who are standing over there. It's the Flying Pickets, When You're Young... There's magic everywhere When you're young and in love Janice informs us that Ian McCulloch has been going about thinking his summit backstage before throwing us back into the charts. 
Again, not a lot to talk about, although I did notice that uh, Janice is following BBC guidelines and, and calling the special, a.k.a. single, Nelson Mandela, omitting the free. Yeah, and calls them yep. the special, a.k.a. band. Which yes. Is yeah, Fucking yeah, yeah. Mac from the Bunnymen, though. Mac from the Bunnymen just told me to tell you he's the greatest thing that ever lived, so mm. I won't. I mean, good for her, but that doesn't that just fucking back up everything we've been saying about him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jesus. But then again, she snaps off the title of the next single, presumably as a dig at the age of the band. It's <laughs> When You're Young and In Love by The Flying Pickets. We've covered The Flying Pickets twice on chart music after they unexpectedly landed the Christmas number one of 1983 and stayed at the top for five weeks with their cover of Only You. This is the follow-up and the lead-off single from their forthcoming debut studio LP, Lost Boys, which comes out at the end of July. It's the cover of the 1964 single which Van McCoy wrote for Ruby and the Romantics, but better known for the version by the Marvelettes, which went to number 13 in July of 1967. It entered the chart at number 30 last week, and this week it soared! (laughs) 24 places to number 13. And here they are in the studio. I mean, we know the rules by now, chaps. You know, when someone gets a surprise number one, the follow-up usually gets a free pass into the charts. But in this case, and by that chart showing, a very popular single. And, you know, it looks like they're going to be around for a bit, this lot. Yeah, it's done all right. Mm. I mean, personally, if we're talking British band doing unusual covers of Motown songs in the late 70s, early 80s, I'm more of a flying lizards man than a flying picket. But I broadly thought these guys were okay. I would have been wishing them well, much in the same way as I was wishing Bell and Devotions well, uh, without actively liking them, if you know what I mean. Mm. Mainly Mm. because of their commitment to socialism, obviously. I mean, some of them had actually been flying pickets in the minor strikes of 72 and 74. That's right. They actually picketed Drax Power Station in the 84-85 minor strike. Right. uh, Much to the dismay of uh, Virgin Records. Um, (laughs) And I I found um, a personal file with Red Stripe, who's the bald one. Yes. You know, the Mm -hmm. uh, Uncle Fester and Eyeliner one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I found this in uh, an old smash hits hosted by Brian McCloskey on his Like Punk Never Happened archive. Hello, Brian. Hello, Brian. And Red Stripe talks about going up to Snaith near Ghoul on Humberside to take part in a picket um, that year in 84. Mm. He had connections up there because he went to Hull Uni. And this this sent me on a bit of a red stripe rabbit hole, not least because I've realised how much I now look like him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> give, or, give or take, you know, a couple of spikes and three stone. Uh, so, yeah, it, it turns out he's, he's, he's from Manchester. He's a former PE teacher called Dave Gittins. But right. he spent loads of his time in Brisbane on the punk scene there. And really? he took part, yeah. Really? Yeah, and he took part in civil rights protests in Queensland, which I guess is uh, protests on behalf of Aboriginal people. Yeah, uh, and then when he got back to the UK, he was actually involved in lesbians and gays support the minors, as depicted oh, in the man. wonderful film Pride. Yes. Um, and he actually put Welsh minors up in his house. Um, everyone should watch Pride, by the way. Mm. You know, I'm sure you agree. Just brilliant film. Yeah. Of course, the, the other bands who actually went to picket lines around this time, the Redskins. Yes. Wasn't it? I mean, mm. imagine that, right? Imagine them being at the same protest. Imagine you got the flying pickets and the Redskins huddled round a brazier <laughs> and like hashing out an a cappella version of "Keep On Keeping On," you know. Mm. Ha! 
uh, you know, Christine trying to persuade the flying pickets to do kick over the statues or, oh, yeah. uh, or something like that on on, uh, on Wogan Perhaps or it was Parkinson the Redskins or Pebble who Mill. Put the idea in the flying pickets has to give away Mark's tea towels on Saturday Superstore. Oh yeah, yeah, maybe. Mm. But yeah, do, do you know what? It's, it's true what you were saying about um, following up a number one hit. Because with this song, when you're young and in love, you can see the thinking. They're hoping lightning will strike twice. Yeah. You know, because they're only you had been a Christmas number one. And it did okay, didn't it? You know, got to number seven. But I think there was a sense of, yeah, we get it now about yeah. their whole yeah. stick, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. They're, they're not a pop group. They don't feel like a pop group. They feel like a cabaret turn. Which is pretty mm. much what they were. It is what they are, yeah. And there's and because of that, there, there's always going to be a sense of, okay, you've had your fun, now move along. And yeah. they were like a busted flush, really, after this. Because that, that is where, where they, they came from, that, that cabaret one. Mm. The first that most people would have seen of them, I guess, was on Jasper Carrot's show, Carrot's Lib in 82. Yes. Um, and by 1983, Granada had given them their own TV special. And if, if you look at a lot of their early TV performances, they are very much playing it for laughs, right? Mm. There's a version of You've Lost That Loving Feeling on that uh, Carrot's Lib episode where one of them provides percussion by popping his finger out of his mouth, like, yeah. you know, like, yeah, like yeah. that. Patsy Ken's it. Bird's eye. <laughs> yes, exactly. Patsy Ken's it, bird's eye, yeah. And the studio audience falls about laughing, you know, and mm. they're doing funny dances, and they do the do-run-run, and one of them keeps shrieking, <laughs> like that, you know. It's like, what? And um, on the uh, Granada special, which I actually watched, by the way, 97 views, zero comments. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> it becomes um, abundantly clear that they are, first and foremost, a comedy turn. Mm. They they have their own songs, and those songs are about being in a band and, and or being too skint to buy nice clothes. They They do a bit where they recreate the sound of a tropical thunderstorm using their mouths. It's all very gimmicky. Right. They do um, the jazz standard summertime, but they make it to be about smoking spliffs and all that, right? Right. So, you know, it's just a bit barren nights, I suppose. Now, yeah, yeah. I love vocal harmony groups. I love doo-wop, and, yeah. but mm. I... I like it done sincerely, and the flying pickets are at their best for me when they're being sincere. On that Granada special, they do Bill Withers' Lean On Me with right. the actor Debbie Bishop out of Linda LaPlante's Widows as a guest, and it's really mm. moving, actually. But mm. I, I think that whiff of novelty was always going to hinder the flying pickets' career as a recording yeah. act. Yeah, um, yeah. That and the fact that they couldn't complete their tour in 84, 85, because the police wouldn't let them enter Nottinghamshire, Roy oh. Link grassed them up. Scab! And uh, and every time they went to Yorkshire, they got beaten up by coppers. You know, the appeal about Only You was, you know, a modern song being done in yeah. a traditional style, mm, mm. and you know, bringing a bit of nuance and shade to it. Uh, but this time, they've gone a bit more traditional and old school. Yeah, and I don't like it all of a sudden. I mean, it, it, mm. it's weird because I liked Only You. I mean, perhaps yeah. that was just residual just because I love that song in its mm. original iteration. But, you know, yeah, this one, when this comes on, I mean, yes, I watched it for the purposes of chart music. Of course, I was thinking of being in the kitchen asking my mum if there's any Wattsits going yeah. um, because I'd have left the room. <laughs> Bizarrely, it sort of reminds me of fucking Caravan of Love two years down the line, Ooh, which I yes. hated in this period, you know? And it also reminds me, actually, speaking of their many, television appearances of course their appearance on live at her majesty's on um sunday the 15th of april 1984 the show that tommy cooper died oh at. yes um, oh my God. and they yeah and they were on the second half as i recall and i remember we could all tell something had gone oh my, i remember wrong. watching that 
Yeah, yeah. So watching them sort of, uh, you know, japing around with Dustin G and Les Dennis, mm. um, I've got that memory as well. And I also, of course, keep thinking of the Marvelettes version. Yeah, which is amazing. Which, which yes. is amazing, which sounds young and sounds fresh and yes. sounds believing. I think that's the crucial thing. Yeah. Put in the hands of old fellas, yeah. well, that puts this song in another place. It's kind of like old guys reminiscing, but almost as if they're watching some young lovers, which is slightly creepy. Oh, God, it's out. like bloody Julio and Willie Nelson, isn't it? <laughs> it Again, is. fucking it old is. people it banging is. on about... Oh, they used to get their end away. This is it. And they've had their one song. Not good, man. Not good. I mean, I love doo-wop. I love the ink spots and stuff like that. But Mm. just in general, I hate most a cappella stuff because it always seems so pleased with itself. Mm -hmm. This kind of smuggery inherent in it of, you know, look, we don't hide behind instruments and we don't hide behind effects, even though there's lots of effects on this record in terms of the vocal production. And there's this kind of look at our raw talent aspect to it that I really don't like and this kind of you know isn't it clever what we're doing Mm. in general at this time I hated soft music you know slow soft music I started hating UB40 at this time because their drums started to sound so fucking weak this doesn't even have drums and it's just way too soft for me then and now it's got no edges and no joy it's just this softness like cotton wool it really stinks of calamine lotion um, this record so yeah not into it I would have left the room this really is a textbook example of horses for courses a load of lads standing about being all solemn and singing soulfully that works perfectly at christmas time but Mm. it's april man we've had easter we want to kick on with summer we want a bit more life and excitement yeah red stripes very animated in this performance compared to only you but the problem is as sarah pointed out when we covered them last uh, he really should be sat at the back and away from the rest of the group playing chess (laughs) <laughs> a very Bergman style. But there they are, standing in front of a, a set that looks like a giant Guess Who board, which has been tipped mm. on its side. Yeah. <laughs> As we've said, this is a very old person's episode of Top of the Pops. We want a bit of zest, and we're not getting it. Yeah, and the novelties run out. You're right. At Christmas, this is fine. But yeah, um, yeah at this point, it's just it's just not what we want at all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they are just stood there ankle deep in dry ice. I mean, they they might as well not be wearing shoes. I bet there's some brothel creeper action going on beneath that smoke, Mm -hmm. definitely. Uh, Maybe the odd winkle picker. Um, Or there's this phenomenal pair of silver Dr. Martins in the case of Red Stripe. Uh, I I saw him wearing them on the Granada thing. Um, there is actually a video for this they could have shown um, very cheaply made I don't know if you've seen it it's got roughly mm. the same level of production values as something like Emu's All Live Pink Windmill show um, <laughs> which around that era um, but in the video um, the band are all in beds in a hospital ward um, but through the right. power of a cappella singing they, they float out of their beds and they start flying across the night sky like like Raymond Briggs's snowman mm-hmm. um, mm. and then they all get chased around by a doctor and a nurse it's a bit carry on and then it all ends up in a big pillow fight and the weirdest thing of all the big reveal at the end is that it's been taking place in a hospital for sick children Great Ormond Street as if the, you right. know we're meant to somehow believe the flying pickets are children um, Jesus but yeah um, and <laughs> It's, it's it's very it's very true what you said about 
I mean, right, for a start with, with the song, um, it's the first time I would have heard this song. I, I wasn't aware yes. of mm. of the whole history of it, you know, written by Val McCoy, Ruby and the Romantics, bigger hit for the Marvelettes in 67, despite my love of Motown, because it didn't mm. crop up on any of the compilations I yeah. owned. Yeah, because it's the Marvelettes who were so fucking criminally underrated. Yeah, mm. they were screwed, really, weren't they? Uh, yeah. If you read yeah. up on I'll them. I'll Keep On Holding On is a fucking tune, mate. Yeah. And I, oh, My Baby Must Be a Magician. Fuck. Hell, that's a great yes well. um yes and yeah it's now um when you're young and loved it's now one of my absolute favorite motown songs the orchestration yes. on the marvelettes version is utterly magical and yeah. yeah like you say neil um the marvelettes were young i mean they were singing in the present tense they were 22 yeah, yeah, years yeah. old mm. um and the song does take on a different meaning when it's a bunch of middle-aged men doing a cappella. It becomes a song yeah. of nostalgia of looking back to a time when they were young and in love. And yeah. and without the music, without those euphoric crescendos of the Motown version, it's a bit flat. Uh, what what yes. I'm saying is it's the same old song, but with a different meaning with the music gone. Yes, <laughs> well played. The, the main vocalist this time is Brian Hibbard, um, the yes. one with the sideburns and the gold mm. army jacket. Yeah. He's, again, this is the, the old uh, um, kind of mortality maths thing. He's only oh, no. 37 when this oh, is Oh, no! Just like, yeah. just like Sandy Shaw. Yeah. Sandy Shaw, same age as Sandy Shaw, but fuck me, he looks a lot older. Uh, yeah, uh, does, and again, yeah. you know, same age as Mutia from the Sugar Babes, <laughs> Nadine and Nicola from Girls Aloud, Bruno Mars, Carly Rae Jepsen. But yeah, God, he looks older. Tell you what, right, if he was a mm. footballer, he'd be a candidate for that amazing Twitter account, uh, at 80s Aging. Have you yes. seen that? It's the one <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it tweets photos of footballers from the old days who looked 50 when they were 29. To be fair to um, Brian Hibbard, he'd been a steel worker in Ebervale. And, uh, you know, I've got family members to whom that applies. That is a tough paper round, as they Hell say. Yeah. But I really don't mind them being here. They, they've introduced me to a wonderful song and... While they haven't exactly done it justice, they haven't murdered it either, I would say. Mm. It, it's an interlude of sweetness, I would say, that this performance. Yeah. What happens to them next, though? I mean, I'm sure you're going to come on to this, but just what I said about them being cabaret and showbiz does mm. check out when you look at the, the afterlife of Flying Pickets, because Hibbard went on to be an actor at Coronation Street, Pobolacum, Twin Town, Emmerdale. Yeah. David Brett, who was the one who was the main vocalist on Only You, I think I'm right in saying, mm. went on to be in a Harry Potter film. Red Stripe, he just went back to a normal life and uh, a normal job as a bread delivery driver. Um, wow. noth- nothing wrong with that, by the way. One of my mates is a bread delivery driver. No. Um, but just imagine... Hey, you can't opening, eat records. Imagine, right, opening the door and seeing Red Stripe there handing <laughs> yeah. you a pallet of crusty cobs. <laughs> Fuck me. With a big French stick on his shoulder like a sickle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the following week, when you young and in love jumped six places to number seven, where it stayed for two weeks its highest position but they decided to go with one of their own songs so close for the follow-up and it only got to number 88 in july yeah Mm. 
They attempted to go back to basics for their next single, a cover of Who's That Girl by the Eurythmics, but it only got to number 71 in December. And when they put out a cover of Only the Lonely in April of 1985, it only got to number 79, and they warmed their hands upon the brazier of the charts for the last <laughs> time. They did a cover of the Eurythmics, Who's That Girl? Yes. Yeah. I've got to, I'm going to seek that out. Yeah, that's what they should have done. I mean, it's almost like a reverse BEF, isn't it? They should have done an entire album of 80s electronic hits yeah. in an acapella yeah. style. Yeah. That would have been interesting. You would have listened to that at least once. Yeah, oh, yeah. they couldn't resist the Mike Yarwood, though, could they? You know, and here's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, dear. That's what B-sides are for, lads. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they're still going, but it's a bit of a Trigger's Broom situation or yeah, Ship yeah. of Theseus. Yeah. Sugar blokes, you know, they're, they're still going. No original members. Sugar You'd blokes. be pretty pissed off if you bought a ticket and it's just six <laughs> randoms. Yeah. We ought to form the band called Sugar Blokes, man. <laughs> Yeah, and then one by one replace ourselves with people from the NME. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Playing pickets with your young and in love. If you can remember the Marvel X version of that, you can watch Kenny Everett afterwards. Charts 10. (laughs) At number 10, it's orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, locomotion. This week's number nine, People Are People, Depeche Mode. At eight, Glad It's All Over from Captain Sensible. Number seven, When You Say You Love Somebody in the Heart by Cool and the Gang. Shaking Stevens at six, A Love Worth Waiting For. At number five, The Reflex, Duran Duran. At four, You Take Me Up, The Thompson Twins. This week's number three, I Want to Break Free by Queen. And number two, Phil Collins against All Odds. And this week's number one, the sixth week for Lionel Richie and Hello. Listen up, everybody. Tony Billy Boy has been in prison for 25 years. He's only been out for three days. The last time you were a free man, the Brooklyn Dodgers were still the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Eisenhower was your president. Laura, Amanda's intrigued with Billy Boy. Billy Boy, ask Amanda for a date. Hey, Amanda, I've just come out of prison. Do you want to see him too? <laughs> You never forget your drama training, dear. We cut back to Bates and Janice, unencumbered by the kids in front of the video screen. Bates tells us that if you remember the Marvelettes version of that, then Kenny Everett is on next. What the fuck is he going on about now? No idea. Like Kenny Everett's X-rated or something. <laughs> yes, it's for the oldens. And that, that's bullshit, because Kenny Everett on After Top of the Pops is perfect scheduling, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's totally for kids, isn't it? Even in 1984, when he calmed down oh. a bit after his move to the BBC, mm. Janice, no-nonsense as always, says, Charts! Ten and whips us into the final quarter of the hit parade, culminating in this week's toppermost of the poppermost. Hello, by Lionel Richard. Janice gets to the um, the top ten countdown, and there are quite a few kind of new wave post punk things mm. in there. You've got OMD, Depeche Mode, Captain Sensible, yeah. Duran Duran, even the Thompson Twins, who I hate. But then you get to the top three, and suddenly it's Queen, Collins, Richie. And yeah, you're feeling the cold hand of death on your yeah, shoulder, yeah, aren't you? Yeah. 
We covered Lionel Richie in Chart Music 56 when All Night Long was given an airing on the 1983 Christmas Day episode while Running With The Night was camped out as the Christmas number 41 and would eventually get to number 9 this January. This is the follow-up and the third cut from the LP Can't Slow Down, which got to number 1 on the album chart last November and crept back up to the top earlier this month. It entered the charts at number 25 in the second week of March, then soared 20 places to number 5 and bedded in at number 1 the week after, dispatching 99 red balloons by Nana. This is its sixth week at number one and has kept It's Raining Men by the Weather Girls, A Love Worth Waiting For by Comrade Shaker, <laughs> You Take Me Up by the Thompson Twins and Against All Odds by Phil Collins at Bay. And here for the six-week running is the full-length five-and-a-half-minute version of the video, <laughs> which was directed by Bob <laughs> Girardi, who did Beat It for Michael Jackson and Love is a Battlefield for Pat. Benatar, fucking old chaps. Where do we start with this song or video? Well, it's difficult disentangling the two. In, in, yes. I mean, in a sense, this is one of those songs that's both made and destroyed by the video. Yes. At the beginning, we've seen an example of the movie trailer that thinks it's a pop video. Yeah, yeah. Now we've got the flip side, which is the music video that thinks it's a fucking film. Yes. Or thinks it's an episode of fame. I mean, it's difficult. Oh, God, it, yes. It's difficult now to imagine the song in isolation from the video. You know, even before I started making notes for chart music and I realised Hello by Lionel Richie was on this, I was thinking yes. about my favourite line from the song, which is actually, <laughs> it's Mr. Reynolds, there's something going on in the sculpture class. I think you should check yes. it out. <laughs> that's like my favourite line and that's what was stuck in my head uh, let's try and get the song out of the way because not because it's cat shit because you know if you're going to have to be made to listen to an 80s ballad it, it might as well be this one there's a lot worse knocking round don't you think in terms of the kind of song it is which I was never into anyway these kind of big ballads no. but it's an effective song yeah yeah it's quite a mm. dark melodramatic song um, about yeah. obsession yeah So, obviously, you know, before watching this, I thought, right, stop the video and remind yourself of the record and try and listen to it in isolation. And, of course, you know, it's a brooding, obsessive, melodramatic, haunted, dark and tragic record. But, of course, Mm. I keep seeing the clay head. The the record itself has no narrative. It's a kind of trapped moment of longing, very akin lyrically to the kind of small, cramped, voyeuristic space inhabited by the protagonist of something like Just My Imagination. But the video gives it, yeah, this mini episode of fame feel that even as a kid, I could, yeah, see and laugh at as mm. as sort of immensely, immensely kitschy. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was kitschy right from day one, wasn't oh, it? Oh, without a doubt. And if you're our age, you don't even have to hear the fucking song. We, we could all gather together and someone could just hold up a photo of the bust of <laughs> yeah. Lionel Richie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, <laughs> everyone it. could just look at it for five minutes and go, oh, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. My problem with this song was the chords, right? Mm. I, I didn't understand them. Mm. It has anything up to 11 chords in it, depending on which transcription you believe. Good Lord. Including E suspended fourth, A minor ninth, and F major seventh. The chorus features a Neapolitan chord, B flat. And for those who don't know, a Neapolitan chord is a chord made from chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla. <laughs> um, that's, that's too many chords. Yeah. And, mm. and the first dozen times you hear it, 
you can't even pick out a melody because it's yeah. all so yeah. muted. It progresses mm. in sad-coloured mocking shadows, to quote Paul Weller. Yes. What it's like, imagine you're in a garden, right, and there's a washing line with a pale grey bedsheet hanging off it, <laughs> and you run towards that bedsheet and your face goes into it. Mm. And as you push through it, there's another washing line and your face hits another pale grey bedsheet mm. and then another and another and you end up looking like René Magritte's The Lovers. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that kind of progression, it owes more to the European classical tradition than to any American R&B tradition. Mm. Or at least it owes something to musical theatre, I think, to Sondheim or to Hamlish. Mm. That bit where it's, are you somewhere feeling lonely or is someone loving you? That melodic passage, mm. that tentative way it climbs up the scale, two steps forward, one step back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There was something else we, we covered like this. Uh, it might have been Love on the Rocks by Neil Diamond or something like that. Love on the Rocks or yeah. something like that. I don't know. But in its composition, Hello is not a soul record in any meaningful no. sense. Mm. God, That's no. probably why I didn't like it, I think. Yeah. yeah. There, there are some songs with that kind of chord structure that I've grown to love as I've matured, like... One Day I'll Fly Away by Randy Crawford. But I've never got there with Hello, I've got to say. I mean, I think, look, for Lionel, I think ever since 1978, he'd been attempting to rewrite Three Times a Lady at some point. And, you know, this, in an era of kind of things like Endless Love, is probably his most successful attempt. The thing is, with most of those soul ballads, they rely on the singer singing to the listener directly, and they tend to be performance vids. But this video is so totally different. It dramatises and colonises the song completely. Um, so yeah. the video becomes everything, and it's still. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. This is a massive safeguarding issue turned into a video. Oh God! You yes, know, yes. It, it's still <laughs> creepy as fuck from the moment he starts with the line "I've been alone with you inside my mind" onwards. Um, it's mm. it's lovers, yeah, massively unprofessional safeguarding issue. It's stalking yes. ultimately. And yeah, where is American Ofsted? <laughs> exactly. So the video then. <sighs> <laughs> The basic, but I mean, I don't even know why I'm bothering to explain it to anyone because anyone listening to chart music knows it shot for shot. Mm. First of all, I mean, making fun of this video is shooting fish in a barrel, yeah. stealing candy from a baby, it's kicking a stick away from a cripple. It's a piece of piss, is what I'm saying. Yeah. It's almost hack to do it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It but is. we've got to do it. We've oh, got yeah. to do it, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Because it is objectively fucking hilarious. <laughs> we didn't shy away from Rennie and Renato. We're not going to shy away from this, man. <laughs> exactly. First of all, it's quite surprising after six fucking weeks at number one that we're getting the extended yeah. yes. with, with the acting bit of the stuff. Yeah, yeah, completely. This is what happens when you get rid of Legs & Co, isn't it? You've got to show <laughs> the fucking video all the time. Oh, God, yeah. So... You know, um, I think possibly uh, they didn't show the full-length video every week, but it just so happens that this week they did. So we find out that Lionel's a drama teacher at some sort of fame-type school for the arts. Yeah, the sort of American school that as scabby British cunts could only gawp at in jealous awe. It's very breakfast club, isn't it? Mm. We don't see him straddling a chair, but we know he is a chair straddler he because be he's doing that on the cover of Can't Slow Down. He is, yeah. Yeah, he is. Yeah. He gets two of the class to improvise the scene. Yeah, listen up, everybody. Tony, Billy Boy's been in prison for 25 years. He's only been out for three days. Last time you were free, man, the Brooklyn Dodgers were still the Brooklyn Dodgers mm. and Eisenhower was your president. Doesn't say the obvious first thing, which was, why were you in prison for 20 years then? <laughs> Are you a murderer? And he's got that cool energy 
yeah, that kind of cool, trendy teacher energy. Yeah. Yeah. And a nice big so flowing us- coat that with the sleeves rolled up as well, man. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's almost a success coat. The paid drama teachers are decent whack in America, <laughs> don't they? Yeah. I'm missing a trick teaching in London, I tell you. Yeah. Um, so then tells a student called Laura that she has to play Billy Boy's love interest. Of course, fans of A Clockwork Orange oh, will yes. be expecting Billy Boy to basically look yes. like Zodiac Mindwalk. But... <laughs> How art thou, thou globby bogler, cheap, stinking chip oil? <laughs> Come and get one in the yarbles if you have any yarbles, you eunuch jelly thou. Yeah, right. <laughs> That'd be why he's been in prison for 25 yes. years. <laughs> then they, they start improvising. And while they're improvising, Lionel starts fucking singing. Mm, yes. Mm. Like, like he's not in the room and they can't hear yes. him. And that's only the first of so many weird moments. <laughs> right, let's clear this up right now. So both of you are further education teachers, aren't you? Yeah, higher education teachers. Oh, yeah. oh higher education <laughs> teachers. Sorry. Sorry, sir. <laughs> so by the law of averages, one or two of your students must be right little cunts. Yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. They give you chelp all the time. They, they don't respect your authority. They refuse <laughs> to conform. Yeah. Have you not considered starting a lecture and then just drifting off to the side and just behind them while they're doing the work or whatever <laughs> and just starting to go, I've been alone with you inside my mind. I am thinking of it now, yeah, man. Yeah. I'd shut the cunts up. I may well use that. I've got a right cunt in a seminar. That's worth moment. a thousand board rubbers to the edge, surely. <laughs> so he starts singing, and then just before the first chorus, we get the big reveal yes. that she's blind. And this is where mm. shit gets controversial, obviously, because the actress is not blind. Mm. She was 26-year-old Laura Carrington, who went on to play uh, Dr. Simone Ravel Hardy on General Hospital and made history as, as part of TV's first black-and-white interracial couple, by the way. Oh. And, of course, she was fully sighted. And you wouldn't do that now, I don't no, think. No. The American Foundation for the Blind have campaigned on this sort mm. of thing. And, obviously, cinema history is littered with examples of sighted actors playing blind characters. No. So you've got... Everything from Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman to Stephen Lang in that horror film Don't Breathe. Um, but it's been compared to blackface. Mm, mm. And you, you can see the point because basically what it comes down to is if blind actors can't get blind roles because they're all being done by sighted yeah. actors, what roles are they yeah. going to get? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, no fair dues. And that choice would have been made by Bob Giraldi, the director. Oh, I w- wouldn't have given it a second thought. Well, exactly. But as you mentioned, he previously directed... Michael Jackson's Beat It, and he was handpicked for that job after directing an advert where an elderly blind couple throw a block party. Right. Right? So the warning signs were there. He was obsessed with blind people. Mm. I mean, he, he later directed a Stevie Wonder video. What he should have done there, right, was get Stevie to play a fully sighted yeah. person just to fuck <laughs> yeah. with everyone, right? But the thing is, Laura Carrington, hello, isn't even the maddest casting choice that Giraldi made. He directed, as you mentioned, Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield, yeah. where Benatar plays a troubled teenager yes. who fights with her parents and runs away from home. Benatar was 30 yeah. at the time. <laughs> but, uh, oh, God. Anyway, yeah, so, yeah, we, we see Laura wandering around the corridors, having lunch, doing some ballet, and importantly, doing some clay yes. modelling, importantly. But then, yeah, 
Then Lionel phones her up, and this is where yeah. Lionel really oversteps the mark. We see her reading Braille in bed, yeah, yeah. and he calls her. He's wearing a shirt with the sleeves cut off at the shoulders, just like Paul Hogan was doing at the time. <laughs> right. You know, that very Aussie rules yeah, yeah. look. That was current, because... Uh, oh, yeah, very much mm, so. As I mentioned, so. uh, I watched that Granada special with the flying pickets. Um, the YouTube version of that uh, preserves the ad break, and in the ad Ooh. break, there is Paul Hogan yes. in a cut-off shirt. No. Putting um, putting a cocktail stick with some fruit on it on top of a pint of Foster's. That's right, yes. <laughs> and he calls her, and he doesn't say anything at first. No. Like a heavy breather. Yeah. Like a heavy breather. The big old fucking freak. Yeah, yeah. Then he starts singing yeah. at her, right? <laughs> and either way, silent or singing, I'm calling the police at that point. Yeah, right? yeah, too bloody right. She's well happy though, isn't she? No, oh, she's yeah. happy about that's, it. That's the fatal moment. You know, her response at that point is key. It's the emotional hinge mm. of the video in a way. And the fact that she smiles at this dirty old man ringing her um, <laughs> is, is fatal you for the song. Lionel Rich is nice, man. He's a teacher who's in a position of responsibility. The thing is, Giraldi, just just to point out, he's, he doesn't seem like the most sensitive person, let's mm. put it that way. No. I read something where Lionel had actually said to him, you know, yeah. firstly, that the story about a blind woman had no Reaction to the song, and Geraldi just replied, "You're not creating the story I am." Yes, but the, but the, one, I, but the one I really liked was that Geraldi added that um, Lionel didn't think that the bus looked like him. Yes, until Geraldi pointed out that the girl making it was supposed to be blind. I mean, he, he, that's a fair point. That is a yeah, fair point. Well, is it a fair point? I don't. I, well. <laughs> Not the most sensitive director, I don't think. But the thing is, like you say, there are huge ethical dimensions to this. I mean, I'm a mm, teacher. Mm, yeah. I'm a teacher. Neil's a teacher. We all know that dating your students is a no-go area. It's a line you do not cross. Mm, Even yeah. if it's legal, yeah. it's unethical. It's a conflict yeah. of interest. Yeah. There was a girl at my uni who was shagging one of the French lecturers at UCL. And we right. all knew that's why she got A grades. It was a massive scandal. Oh, yes. So basically, mm. Mr. Reynolds is getting the sack if he pursues this any further, <laughs> isn't it? Mm. But yeah, then yeah. a guy comes into Lionel's classroom and says the immortal line, Mr. Reynolds, there's something going on in sculpture class. I think you should check it out. And that's when... <laughs> He's thinking there's going to be a clay fight yeah, yeah, yeah. or something. <laughs> you would, man. But that's when we find out that Laura Carrington is part of an elite triumvirate there's emmanuel santos there's cecilia jimenez and there's laura carrington right yeah emmanuel santos is the sculptor who created the bust of cristiano ronaldo for madeira airport (laughs) when it was renamed cristiano ronaldo international airport which was so bad that it became a worldwide (laughs) meme and was taken away and put in storage and um santos (laughs) responded to criticism by saying even jesus did not please everyone (laughs) and uh, Cecilia Jimenez is the amateur painter who restored the Eke Homo fresco of Jesus in a church in Zaragoza in Spain and made him look like a monkey. Um, yes. And, <laughs> and then you've got Laura Carrington, who somehow, yeah. somehow made Lionel Richie look even more chinny and prognathic than he already yes. is. You know. And, yeah. and I, I've, I've often wondered. She's, it's very good, though. I think Lionel wanted him to look a bit more like Jimi Hendrix. Well, he probably <laughs> wanted it to be a flattering version, yeah. Because apparently he was a bit obsessed. He, he Apparently he go to people go, don't you think I look like Jimi Hendrix a bit? Oh, my God. I, look, I, I, I think it looks faintly in Neanderthal, doesn't it? it, it it's, mm. I'm not saying it's racist. Like, my, my passport photo is so terroristy, it's racist, basically. <laughs> this isn't quite that bad. But, um, yeah. 
Uh, what a moment, though. What a moment. Yeah. The reveal of that. I've often wondered, because, you know, it is a notoriously bad video. I, I've wondered how it affected everybody involved in it. And I've mm. often wondered whether Lionel is haunted or scarred by hello. Apparently, the phrase hello, is it me you're looking for, follows him everywhere. Even Prince Charles yeah. said it to him, apparently. Oh, um, God. But... He's got a sense of humour about it. He's, uh, I mean, maybe he's protesting too much. Do you know what I mean? Like people do sometimes, they kind of own it. But he's mm. he's sung it on helium on German TV to, uh, like, you know, like to, to subtract credibility from the love song. Mm. Like uh, like Steve Coogan's mm. IRA spokesperson on the day yeah, today. Yes. You know, Hello, it's a legitimate love song. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he's done it on Tonight with Jimmy Fallon with his actual head on a wooden plinth oh, while Fallon sings it wow. to him. Does that head still exist? Mm, that's the question. I'm coming to that. Oh. And Lionel's even reenacted it on a Doritos advert with Chance the Rapper, oh. where um, he remolds the clay head as a sort of hybrid of himself and Chance with a baseball hat. Right. Um, so you could even say Lionel's gone beyond having a sense of humour about it. It's now fucking milky, mm. to be honest. Mm. Um but yeah, I, I wondered if it affected um, his co-star or the director uh, in in their later life. After the video came out, apparently Laura Carrington went to quite a few Lionel Richie concerts in various cities, and people would recognise her and treat her as if she was really yeah. blind. Oh no! Which I kind of, is, I suppose, is understandable, really. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, as for Giraldi, despite making what was voted by viewers of the box as the worst video ever made. Mm. Um, Bob Giraldi did have a, you know, he's, he's had a fairly successful career. He's directed a few films. One of the National Lampoon franchise was by him and a, a highly acclaimed independent film called Dinner Rush. Um, but he runs loads of restaurants now in New York. And right. I, I did wonder um, if you get your dinner free, if you can sculpt your mashed potato into a convincing <laughs> facsimile of Lionel yes. Richie's head. You know, like in Close Encounters, but Lionel instead of a mountain. But yeah, apparently, um, straight after, you know, the video wrapped, Lionel destroyed the head because he hated it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And of course, it it would be priceless now. It would just be the it would be the ultimate kind of piece of rock memorabilia. Oh god, yeah. yeah. The only missed trick here, I guess, is wouldn't it have been wonderful if um in a sort of Ray Harryhausen style moment the head had started singing? Yes. <laughs> That'd be fucking awesome. Like the video for <laughs> Reap Petite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh God! Oh my God! But it's God. the first time that someone's given Lionel Richie head on the on a video on top of the pops. <laughs> well done. <laughs> who's buying this? Well, and who's buying it by week six of it being at number fucking one? Yeah, that is crazy, isn't it? I've never understood <laughs> I that. I mean, because an awful lot of people would have had the album, to be honest with you. It, it, exactly. It's an album that's got only got eight songs on it, and this is the last mm. song on it, which obviously nothing could come after this. But no. 10 million sold. I don't know who's buying this still in week six. Um, it's, it's the fucking dads again, isn't it? They're bought against all odds, met them feel a bit sorry for them, son. And now they're seeing the flip side of dad divorce, isn't it? All that all that young crumpet just gagging for it. Yeah, but that's not what the song is about. That's the thing. It, 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 well, that's what they get from the video. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so intimately connected with its video. And I can't even think of another example where the video and the song are so connected in this fashion that you cannot mm. imagine one without the other. The yeah. thing is with this, I'm glad it exists. I'm still glad it yes. exists. I'm glad it's there. I don't need to watch it again. Like no. you said, Al, it's instant recall with this stuff. Um, it can play in your head whenever you want it to be there. 
So the following week, Hello was stood down from the number one spot to make way for the reflex. I think that's why Top of the Pops decided to show the full version. The encore presentation, if you will. Even though it was at number one for six weeks, it would only finish the year as the seventh biggest selling single of 1984. One below Last Christmas by Wham and one above Agadu by Black Lace. The follow-up, Stuck On You, got to number 12 in July and Can't Slow Down went on to sell 20 million copies worldwide and win the Grammy for Best Album. And Lionel was reunited with a copy of his massive scary head last decade in an advert for American Idol. Mm. Apparently, Simon, you, you can buy your own copy, but the website of the company that made it wants you to contact them for a price. So, you know, it's not going to be affordable. And that's a shame because I think one of those would look absolutely skilled by your turntable when you're doing your mini cab FM sets. Every home should have one. Yeah, it'd be great, wouldn't it? I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Pricey. I'll get my little sofa on it because if she can do Eddie the S, she can do Lionel, surely. Yeah, just do do Eddie with a wet look (laughs) in the stash. Amazing. Even better, Simon, if they did masks of the Lionel Richie bus, that would be fucking great, wouldn't it? That's your Halloween costume sorted out, isn't it? Yeah. You just put the song on and then you just nip out and tap people on the shoulder <laughs> hello is that me you're looking for <laughs> I love you Mr Reynolds excuse me but there's something going on in the sculpture class I think you ought to check it out I've wanted you to see it so many times but I finally think it's done tell me what you think of it It's wonderful. This is how I see you. We rejoin Bates and Janice amongst the throng of youths. Bates gives the video director of Hello a credit, but calls the artist Lionel Richard. Imagine Cliff Richard with a wet look and a moustache. Oh. Or even Keith Richards with a wet look and a moustache. Before warning us that Mike Reed is presenting next week. Janice says hello to Motherwell Football Club. Not sure why, but they're currently bottom of the Scottish Premier League, so they, you know, they could do with a bit of a boost. I can help you there. I looked into this. Ooh. Uh, I wondered which member of the Motherwell squad of 1984 would have written to Janice mm. asking for a shout-out. Mm. Now, I don't think it was the teenage Tom Boyd or the teenage Gary McAllister who was in the squad. <laughs> um, I don't think it was the exotic Icelandic import Johannes Edvaldsson. I reckon it was the goalkeeper <laughs> Hugh Sprout. Do you remember this guy? Oh, that rings a very faint bell. If you collected Panini stickers in the late Ooh. 70s, early 80s, you would have come across Hugh Sprout he was quite eye-catching. He became a bit of a cult hero, even at my school in Wales, because of his look. By this time, 
in 84. He's in his last season at Motherwell. And he was definitely a candidate for that 80s ageing Twitter account because yeah. he had a sensible grey centre parting and a bushy moustache at the age of only 31. He basically, by, by the time it's 84, he's looking more like Renato from René Renato. But, <laughs> but I remember him a, a little bit before this. I remember him as the punk footballer. Um, he oh, had what? Yeah, he had short, spiky red hair. Because everybody knows that in Scottish terms, um, Pat Nevin's your post-punk yeah, footballer. Yeah, yeah, right? yes. But Hugh Sprout was the punk footballer. He had, he had short, spiky red hair. Uh, this is when he was playing for Air United. Right. And uh, he turned up in Shoot magazine in 1977, <laughs> revealing that he was such a fan of punk rock that he regularly wore earrings shaped like razor blades, Whoa. right? Wow. And one of these razor blades was green, the other blue, in a nod to the old firm, right? Mm. And th- this was quite... Just having that kind of... Ta- these tastes was quite rare at the time, because mm. most footballers Definitely. were... They were into, like, George Benson. That was always a cliche, wasn't it? <laughs> um, or maybe a little bit later on, Phil Collins. So, I mean, yeah. it would make sense if his musical tastes developed through into post-punk and new wave that... Um, Hugh Sproat would be a Janice Long listener. That's my theory anyway. Um, And it's a good one, Simon. And and on just a bit more about Hugh Sproat, right? He was was voted Motherwell's all-time cult hero in a BBC poll. And the more you find out about him, the more you understand why. Because, right, he wasn't in the Scotland squad for Argentina 1978, the World Cup. But he flew there to see them, did Hugh Sproat, on a one-way ticket. He didn't even have a return ticket. He hitchhiked all the way through South America and North America after the tournament to get home via Canada. I reckon you'd need balls of steel to hitchhike through South America in 1977. You need balls of steel now. Mm -hmm. But... Um, Hugh Sproat clearly did have balls of steel, right? Because he, <laughs> when, when uh, um, Air United or Motherwell or whoever um, played against Celtic, he would wear a blue shirt. And when they played against Rangers, he'd wear a green <laughs> shirt. That is some next level trolling Ooh, there. So, yeah, I reckon it was hell. Hugh Sproat. What a shame Sproat and Nevin and uh, Pierce yeah. never had a sort of jam session or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. Sadly, we can't ask Janice what the reason was behind this. But if Hugh Sproat is out there, maybe he can mm. confirm or deny. Just before one of the youth pushes baits onto Janice in a ah my mate fancies you sort of a way <laughs> and they both end up sprawled over the railings they sign off with automatic by the pointer sisters we covered ruth june and anita pointer in chart music 20 when they failed to get their cover of everybody is a star into the top 40 in february of 1979 since then they managed to get their follow-up fire to number 34 for two weeks and then kicked it up a gear when slow hand got to number 10 in september of 1981 in 1983, they put out the LP Breakout, but the lead-off single from it, the down-tempo I Need You, failed to chart on both sides of the Atlantic. However, this track was picked up on by American radio and clubs and played to death, forcing their label's hand and making them rush it out. It immediately soared to number five on the Billboard chart and was put out over here last month, taking three weeks to get to number 38 last week. But this week it soared 18 places to number 20. So here's a bit of the video and a lot of zoo wankers. <laughs> I mean, this song is fucking skill. I love this. And uh, I can't believe the record company didn't make it the lead off single. I mean, that is just I know. daft, isn't it? 
But I remember, yeah. I remember hearing this on the radio, sort of well before I knew who it was by, and being initially like really confused about the lead voice, about yes. is yes. it male, is it female, you know. Mm. Yeah, Ruth's vocals really key to what makes this so amazing. And it's still a startling mm. thing, this record. It's their best, I think, since How Long Bet You Got a Chick on the Side, which is one of their most yes. amazing tracks. Um, this mm. is all there with it. Great video as well. And another thing is, it, it is another dagger of ice for the kids. Ruth Pointer uh, has just become a grandma yeah, at the age of 38. It? So we've got grannies on top of the pops now. Granny at 38. But who gives a fuck? Because this is the absolute highlight of the episode, to my mind. Yeah. Uh, little known fact, they're known as the Bird Dog Sisters in the States, um, arranging right. their bodies in a straight line to indicate the presence of a partridge or a grouse. <laughs> um, yeah. No, they, they, they had a, a really strange career mm. trajectory, the Point of Sisters, didn't they? Because mm. their Indian summer of their career was more fruitful than the original heyday. Yes. It's not just that they were a 70s act who adapted incredibly well to the 80s. They were a nostalgia act, even in the 70s. There's a, a New York Times mm. live review of a Point of Sisters gig I found from 1973, in which they're described as doing Cab Calloway-style scat singing, dressed yes. up in 1940s clothes, and their support yes. band is actually Louis Jordan and his Timpani Whoa. Five. Fucking hell. So they were just touring around doing this kind of jazz scat stuff. Bet Midler style. Well, man. oh my God, funny you should mention that, because uh, uh, I also found an album review, uh, Ian MacDonald in the NME reviewing the day Mm. album and that's also from 1973 saying though not as histrionic as Bette Midler can be the pointers yeah. are in the same suspect rock cabaret category and I can't say that they have any positive meaning for our music beyond their own dazzling voices and beautiful legs <laughs> still let's give them a chance to prove themselves oh uh, Christ Ian MacDonald yeah. there the thing with Pointer Sisters, though, they, they could turn their hand to anything. Mm. I mean, yes. it's, it's the fact they're so adaptable from doing that kind of old-style vaudeville stuff to country and western to rock to soul. It meant they were very well-placed to be the kind of R&B soul act who could take on board the new synth-based sound of the post-disco yeah. era. They were just like, take to it like a duck to water. I mean, they, they wrote yeah. a country song called Fairy Tale, which won them a Grammy, and, um, and Elvis well, covered it. And they, they really? were the f- yeah Bloody yeah, hell. and they they were the first black group to play Grand Ole Opry, right? Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Their experience in Nashville wasn't entirely positive. Um, there was a private oh. after party following their performance. Mm. When they arrived, they were taken around the back of the house and left to sit in the kitchen because the person who answered the door thought they were the hired help. Oh man, fuck me, yeah. That's not a rare thing. I mean, we talked no, yeah. we talked earlier about Count Basie, and uh, I read the other day that in 1974 the Sweet were playing America and they were in the same hotel as Count Basie and Count Basie went up to um, your man Brian Connolly and said oh boys you know nice to meet you uh, you yeah. did a really good show last night and Brian Connolly said fucking never mind that help us get our stuff into the van <laughs> oh god yeah. yeah but they they had a very eventful 70s and this is kind of before most of us in this country had even heard of them mm-hmm. they were having this crazy time in the States at least two of them had recurring drug issues and yeah. if a member missed a show a statement would be put out saying they were suffering nervous and physical exhaustion which was like one of the euphemisms mm. in those days. And the thing is, if you look at this top of the pops that we're watching, if you had Ooh. to pick any act on this TOTP who would be secret smackheads, I'm saying <laughs> the Pointer Sisters would be at the bottom of the list. Yes. But there we go. And I, I, I Who's don't at the top? Flying pickets. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
I mean, I, I, I don't actually. Let's be serious. It's Andy Rourke from the Smiths, isn't it? But um, mm. I, I don't want to play amateur psychology here. But I'm going to anyway, right? I, I suspect religion really fucked them up, the brothers yeah. sisters, because I, I saw mm. an interview with Ruth, uh, the deep voice lad, and uh, he's the <laughs> eldest. She's the eldest, and uh, she talks about how her father was a pastor, and that Ooh. meant she was always under scrutiny around town mm. yeah. by everyone in case she did anything that wasn't respectable. Something mm. that was ungodly. And ungodly, in their eyes, included such things as wearing lipstick, right? And Ooh. if you indulged in such sins as wearing lipstick, your destiny was the devil and spending all eternity yeah. in a pit of hell fire, you know. And the only part of salvation was to repent from wearing lipstick and allow Jesus to mend your ways. So, I mean, she tried to distance herself from all that yeah. as she got older. And perhaps being let off the leash from that without your parents and the church and the local congregation watching over you. When you're in a successful musical group, I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. Mm, if you haven't already yeah. tasted those pleasures when you're a teenager, you know, you're going to go crazy, aren't you? Mm. And they did some serious living. Like you say, by the time we get this song, Ruth is 38 and she's a grandma, that she'd been married five times. I mean, that's going so uh, Yeah, yeah. Their, their life was crazy. They partied really hard in the 70s. They hung around with Richard Pryor and Muhammad Ali. Oh, and all right. Sorts. Yeah. Okay, and um, the excitement was obviously all a bit much for Bonnie Pointer because she left. Yeah. Either it was all a bit much or it went to her head because I think she thought she was all that. And She was about she... to lose control and she thinks she didn't like hey. it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and she didn't do very well as a solo act. She must have been so pissed off. Because oh, no God, yeah. sooner does she go solo than the Pointer Sisters start having hits, like mm. their cover of Bruce Springsteen's Fire in 79, which I love, by the way. Yeah. And um, Slow Hand in 81, which I also love. Mm. And then you've got this really imperial phase with yes. Jump, and I'm so excited, and Neutron Dance, and, and this song. Yeah. What I like about Automatic here, on Top of the Pops, is the video, because it looks like it's filmed in a kind of automatic video booth. Um, <laughs> I, I was sort of, <laughs> very reminiscent of a famous scene in Fame, where Leroy does a dance behind a screen, and all these, you know, these usual mad Asian wedding video effects start happening. <laughs> also reminiscent, oddly enough, of Chicone Youth's Madonna cover into the groove later on, when Sonic Youth oh. went a bit mad. But... We don't really get enough of the video because we get so much of the audience here. Oh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. man, man, man. Or do we get the audience? That's the thing. Well, um, we cut between the video, which is a, a bog standard, mm. shove the group in front of the camera and let them get on with it sort of thing with phasing effects. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Very early 70s, top of the pops phasing effects as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's that kind of vibrating ready brick glow, isn't yes. it, around them? <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. And we get cuts back to the studio filled with writhing figures, but sadly, as always, um, City Farm get precedence. City Farm. <laughs> it's horrible. It's a horrible picture of the dynamic going on in that studio because we get a, a line of these these city farm cunts doing their mm. shit striding but yeah. perhaps more upsettingly a line of girls behind them trying to copy it as yes if, as if oh it breaks your fucking heart it does break it? my heart yeah. it, as if that's dancing you know it's like watching two little girls pretending to be the kardashians you, your heart <laughs> sinks man it's terrible and city farm are doing cna fashion show moves aren't they well if i can yeah. identify one thing Please from this do. episode about zoo that really pisses me off beyond Beyond their idiotic expressions of enjoying the music, if anyone looks like that enjoying music, I just want to slap them. But um, mm. it's their fucking arms. They're the yes. arms of someone who's never really been on a proper dance floor. You try pulling that shit on a proper dance floor, <laughs> you, you know, you're going to hit people yeah. and you're yeah. going to piss people <laughs> off. 
Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's very, very vexing. Not only that they're doing it and that the camera frequently cuts to them, but the horrible sight, like you say, Al, of people trying to emulate this. This is yeah. not dancing. This is not dancing. No. Yeah. One or two, the, the male members of the audience try on with uh, members of City Farm, which is amusing. <laughs> <laughs> they make their presence felt at the end, the, the lads. I don't know if you spotted this, but there's a girl, probably an audience member... Um, well, if, if my theory's correct, definitely an audience member rather than a City Farm wanker, um, who really looks like Susan Tully from Grange Hill, Ooh. and more importantly, from BBC One's new soap, EastEnders. Indeed. Ooh. Soon to be new soap, EastEnders. Yeah, yeah. And I do wonder if she snuck over from the Albert Square set. You very, know, very I possible. I, I tried having a, you know, I haven't seen it on a bigger screen, but yeah, it just looked like her, that's all. Yeah. So, Tina Turner, Shaka Khan, Pointer Sisters... Soul acts of the 70s and earlier had a really bad time during the disco age, but fucking completely au fait with the new synthy scene and just fucking producing gold. Shitting out gold, they are. That's a good point. I bet the Pointer Sisters did try disco. I've not mm. heard it, but mm. I bet there's some like some amazing 12s out there that I don't know about. Yeah. But yeah, they, they didn't have hits in that era. You're absolutely right. And this song, it's not sort of written by a soul songwriter. It's written by... Mark Goldberg, who has many right. credits, mostly middle of the road and adult-oriented rock. Mm. Like he'd written for people like Andrew Gold and Linda Ronstadt and Peter Frampton. Right. So yeah, um, even though this is kind of what you would call a post-disco record, it was coming from that sort of middle of the road um, side of things. And um, oh, th- this guy, the weirdest credit many years later is Novocaine for the Soul by Eels. Really? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bizarre. But yeah, this record it is all about Ruth, the contralto with the deep voice and yeah neil's absolutely right i mean i I don't think we talk enough about what a strange thing her voice is it reminds me this story about Cher. um when Cher brought out uh, a single called i love ringo when she was really young Mm. um it got banned from the radio because her voice was so deep that djs (laughs) thought it was a man Um, (laughs) and in a way um it's ruth's voice that is the song's hook as Mm, much as the keyboard motif which is the more you know the point assist is in this era they are even though they're from a past era they are really emblematic of the high 80s. Yes. It's the sound of success and hard work, isn't it? It's, mm. it's the sound of people in leg warmers doing aerobics and driving <laughs> DeLoreans. You know? It's very John Hughes movie. This is very Hollywood. I was actually going to say, it sounds like it ought to be in Beverly Hills Cop 2 or something. Yes. And I checked. It's actually in Beverly Hills Cop <laughs> yes. 2. It's also in Miami Vice Series 1, Episode 4, Calderon's Demise. Mm. And it's a scene in which Crockett and Tubbs are meeting a drug dealer in a club. Didn't that pretty much happen every episode? <laughs> I don't know. And there's another episode called Calderon's Return where... Um, I'm so excited by the point assist is playing in a club. So they're very Miami Vice. Automatic is also on the Grand Theft Auto by City soundtrack on the Fever 105 radio station. There's a bit, see, I'm not a video games guy, so you probably know this already, Mm. but there's a bit where you can walk into a bar and the village people, not the point sisters, are performing it. Yes. <laughs> and you can go and shoot them all dead if you want. Yeah. But you've got to be careful of the construction worker because if you get too close, he'll kick your head in. Mm. I don't mind automatic. I, I'm not so much into jump or I'm so mm. excited, that kind of fatuous, facile Reaganite pop. Yeah. But with with all those songs, the weird thing is how state-of-the-art the Pointer Sisters became yes. around this time, considering what a veteran act they already were. I, 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 know you, I know you guys think it's skill and men. I could never love Automatic, but I can really admire it. It's mm. really got something, yeah. Oh, I love it, man. I mean, the, my favourite bit is the middle eight, because it, it sounds like, you know when you go to Skegness on your holiday and you're in an amusement arcade, 
and every now and again, all the one-armed bandits would just go off at the same time. <laughs> That's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> it's fucking brilliant, this song is. Yeah. It, this this is the, the summer song of 1984, to my mind. Yeah, it's very evocative of that time, definitely. Mm. Do you know the Pointer Sisters? Have, uh, not only have they got a star on the Walk of Fame in Hollywood, there's a Pointer Sisters Day in Oakland, oh, really? California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the 1st of September, that day I'll always remember. Um, <laughs> Oakland was dishing out a lot of days to pop stars around then. They gave Sheila E. a day, um, 28th of February, right. which is a shitty day to uh-huh. have in the Northern uh-huh. Hemisphere. Mm. At least it wasn't the 29th of February, I suppose, which yeah. is really shit, only every four years. Yeah, but yeah. when they have days, it's just that day. It's not every year. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's bollocks, isn't it? Yeah. Uh. Uh, I know. I, th- I think we should revive. I think every first of September should be Pointer Sisters Day, guys. Mm. Just take a load of heroin and sing in a deep voice. I mean, speaking of Oakland, August the twenty fifth is Digital Underground Day. Quite right too. Ooh. Quite right too. Oh, nice. So that's a day where, yeah, you can do the Humpty Hump, I guess. Yeah. Well, you can do what you like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With a plastic nose on, yeah. Like Mr. Potato Head. So the following week, Automatic soared 15 places to number five and a fortnight later spent two weeks at number two, held off its rightful place on the summit of Mount Pop by the reflex. The follow-up, Jump got to number six for two weeks in June, and they would round off 1984 with a re-release of I Need You getting to number 25 in September, and I'm So Excited getting to number 11 in November. On May the 26th, 1984, a month to the day of this episode being broadcast, the Soviet Union launched a nuclear attack on Britain, which led to the country having a population of 4 to 11 million people living under medieval conditions by 1994, according to the documentary Threats. <laughs> As that country had decided to put the reflex at number one over automatic that week, Britain fucking deserved it, if you ask me. <laughs> Any country that thinks the reflex is better than this can't live. <laughs> and that, pop craze youngsters, brings us to the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks on with a compilation of the Kenny Everett television show, followed by We Got It Made, the American sitcom about two bachelors who employ a beautiful blonde maid and was absolute cat shit (laughs) after the news it's part four of missing from home the drama series where judy lowe's husband drops off the radar but she gains a new spirit of confidence and independence which is nice there's a big argument about strikes and nuclear missiles in question time then mike cocker pricks about on a dead expensive computer in the technology show electronic office before they close down at a quarter to midnight BBC Two ducks out of the snooker to let Sir Lawrence Gowring wang on about Masocchio in Three Painters. Then Tony Soper flags up a link between hamburgers and the destruction of the rainforests and then wonders why some animals like shoving it in in springtime (laughs) in the wildlife show Nature. After half an hour of Mike Harding in Belfast, the documentary series 40 Minutes gives us the point of view of an alien who has come down to Earth for a nose about, before going back to the snooker for a bit, then it's news night, more snooker, and then an hour of open university before knocking it on the head at 1am. 
ITV is half an hour into the made-for-TV film Agatha Christie's Sparkling Cyanide, starring Anthony Andrews. Then Alistair Burnett and Dennis Tuer examine the link between MPs and political lobbyists in TVI. After news at 10 and regional news in your area, it's a repeat of Shelley, a repeat of the Channel 4 documentary series The Spanish Civil War, New Heart, Night Thoughts with Richard Corston, and they turn it in at half past midnight. Channel 4 eventually gets round to The Sea, a documentary about people stranded or disappearing in the middle of the Pacific, including an interview with an old sailor, not the old sailor, (laughs) who ended up on a raft after his ship was torpedoed and describing that by a month in, the survivors were so dehydrated they had to pull strings of urine out of their own penises. Oh my God. I I remember watching this after Top of the Pops and that memory has stayed with me to this day. That was far more memorable than anything in this episode of Top of the Pot. If Simon Bates had done that, then... Bert and Saul travel back in time in soap. Then it's the final part of Caught in a Free State, the drama series about German spies. Then it's the Tony Randall sitcom Love, Sydney, and they finish off with Isolation, a sketch for someone a collection of poems. Then it's the television opera series Perfect Lives and Ian Breakwell's continuous diary closing down at 20 past midnight. So, boys, I know it's Easter holidays, but what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Well, there's lots of stuff to kind of moan and laugh about. Um, and maybe I'd have been yes. talking about who that, you know, who that MILF was on stage with the Smiths. But to be honest, it'd be <laughs> Duran. I think all the talk would be about Duran. For better or worse, yes. they were so, they're the, the sort of biggest thing on here. And you judged mm. them according to the singles and kind of whether it worked or not. So I think all the talk would be about Duran, to be honest. Yeah. Tell you what I'm thinking about now, knowing what we know now. Mm. I'm trying to imagine what it must have looked like when Lionel Richie, in a fit of rage, destroyed <laughs> the clay effigy of himself. And I do yeah. wonder if Bob Giraldi's cameras were still rolling when that yes. happened. That would be the greatest bit of lost and found footage known to humanity i mean fuck the beatles and get back really (laughs) how would he have done it you just put a fist in it or baseball bat or thrown it off a building or i mean was it hollow he'd have just torn at it and thrown clods uh, you know around like a shit flinging (laughs) gibbon it it had just been (laughs) crazy with it Mm. But at the time, um, I, I definitely remember that if I was talking about anything from this performance, it would have been Sandy Shaw. It would have mm. been, who's that old woman rolling around on the floor with a yes. sex? <laughs> Imagine being 37. <laughs> God. <laughs> what are we buying on Saturday? If I'm honest, Duran and Pointers. Mm. I'm buying Sandy Shaw and the Smiths, um, mm. along with all the other Smiths records I bought at Spillers in Cardiff, but not straight away. It would have to wait till summer when I'd earned a bit of money at Butlins, um, yeah. handing over my cash with my fingers still whiffing of cockles and mussels alive, alive. <laughs> but, um, the boy with the prawns in his tray. <laughs> exactly. Well done. Uh, yeah, I, I bought Reflex by Duran Duran, not for myself, but for my mum um, as a birthday oh, right. present, because right. weirdly she liked it, even though it wasn't her usual mm. kind of music at all. I just Good don't know why she just latched onto that song. Um, in reality, though, it was one of those things where I bought it for her, but I played yeah. it loads more than she did. And I basically co-opted it into my own collection. Which of course is, she did. You know, it's how I know what the B-side sounds like. Did she know? write her name on it, though? <laughs> no. And what does this episode tell us about April 1984? What it tells us is 
They'll split your pretty cranium and fill it full of air and tell you that you're 80, but brother, you won't care. You'll be shooting up on anything. Tomorrow's never there. Beware the savage lure of 1984. No, no, what it tells us is, what it tells us is this, right? The oldies are coming, Mm. right? Band-Aid and Live-Aid may still just be a twinkle in Geldof's eye, but already the chart is full of 37-year-olds. The oldies are taking over. Yeah, we we were told to worry about Big Brother, but it's massive dad. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly right. And and this episode sends out a wake-up call, and what it's saying is, let's get together to fight this oldie Armageddon. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what comes across. New pop by now is dead. The old guard's returning. Mm. Also, American dominance very soon. Um, yes. The underground is kind of becoming behemoths, these big bands like Echo and the Bunnymen. The, the charts are still home to oddity here and there, but Top of the Pops is increasingly not going to be left out a chance. And like Pricey says, those you know those our band moments? Oh, it's one of our bands. Uh, they're going to yeah. get very rare indeed very, very soon. I mean, this episode was intended as partly a tribute to Janice Long, but we haven't really said that much about her, simply because she's just doing a fucking job. Yeah, she is. She knows what she's there for, and she gets on with it, and she does it. But oddly enough, the pop that we see on this episode of Top of the Pops is precisely why a lot of us were listening to Janice late on, you know, late in the yeah. evening, mm. to find out what was actually going on, rather than what this episode of Top of the Pops presents to us. Yeah. Yeah, she's just great and really mm. likeable. She doesn't try too hard to impose her personality personality or to crack jokes or anything like that um mm. but she's just a really warm presence on there particularly contrasted with the sort of partridgeisms of Bates you know? yes yeah. and that pop craze youngsters brings this episode of chart music to a close usual promotional flange www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music reach out to us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p money down the g-string patreon.com slash chart music neil substack oh yeah neilk.substack.com please let me live the pipe dream and it is just an innocent pipe dream not a crack pipe dream of um, being a writer again <laughs> neilk.substack.com please subscribe Thank you very much, Simon Price. Ah, cheers. You're welcome. God bless you, Neil Kulkarna. No worries, Chuck. My name's Al Needham, and let me end by saying... I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Sharp music. It's a good time for the great taste of McDonald's. What a night. What a night. What a night. What a night it has been, and I'm telling you, I am floored all the way around. When I said the word outrageous at the beginning, I had no idea it was going to be outrageous. I'm telling you. Let me say this to you. Tonight we have a very special way of saying goodbye. Although 1984 has been a great, great year for the music business, in the rest of the world, they've been faced with problems of freedom, of hunger, and of peace. And tonight, 
I want to take this opportunity to ask all of you, now that I have all of you watching, to take, thank you, to take time out right now to feel all the other people of the world who are in trouble right now tonight. So I think that since we have, since we have so many beautiful people watching tonight, I want you to know that the world's in trouble and there are people that are crying out for your help. And I thought I'd take this opportunity right now tonight to use the words of Paul McCartney and John Lennon when I say, let it be. When we find ourselves in times of trouble, that's the time for you and me to join with all the people. Let it be. For if we come together, can the world be safe and free? Free from war and hunger, let it be. 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 Free from war and hunger, let it be. Broken hearted people living in the world. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.